Hello, I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Welcome to A Dinner for One, this occasional series of one-on-one conversations courtesy of us at the Dinner Party Download. Yes, these are bonus, podcast-only, long-form conversations with artistic luminaries. Loquacious, looming luminaries. And I think that exhausts our supply of L adjectives. I think we're done. Lovable. Okay. Loquacious. You won. Luminous luminaries. Okay. Well, now we're done. Great. Uh, so basically, you're <laughs> about to hear an almost unedited conversation with someone amazing, and that someone is Paul Feig. Paul is beloved for creating and producing the cult favorite TV show Freaks and Geeks, along with his friend and collaborator Judd Apatow. Maybe you've heard of him. In addition to its excellent writing and direction, the show was known for launching some very big Hollywood careers, including those of Jason Segel, James Franco, and and Seth Rogen. All on Paul's speed dial, yep. probably right now. I would love to have that phone. And that's not all, because these days, Paul's probably best known for his feature films. Mm. Most of them are rated comedies, most of them featuring female heroes. Yeah. For instance, Bridesmaids, starring Kristen Wiig, Spy, starring Melissa McCarthy, oh, yes. and the Ghostbusters reboot, starring all of the above, plus the great Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones. And guess what? His latest comedy, Snatched, also stars a pair of women. Mm-hmm. He's keeping it going. <laughs> Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn star in this movie. It is about a mother and daughter duo who are kidnapped while on vacation. That's why it's called Snatched. You get it. Uh, now, look, normally when we talk to guests, they're either with one of us in the studio or we're connected digitally if they're not in the studio with us. Sure. But on the day I spoke with Paul... Our office internet was down. Oh my! Yeah, That's, a bird flew into our antenna, <laughs> or, or something. Or Kai Rizdal was downloading. I don't know, all of Glenn Glenn Miller's back catalog or something. So anyway, I ended up talking to Paul by phone, and we recorded our respective sides of the conversation. Hello. Hey, Brandon. Hey, Paul. How are you? Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a thank. I appreciate it. I'm sorry you're uh, having internet troubles. That's crazy. Public radio, we're struggling, but we're not struggling this bad. No, no. I, <laughs> I love public radio no matter what. So. All right. One thing though, before we get started, you're known for dressing really Natalie. But apparently, <laughs> uh, you are, why did you show up naked to a radio interview? That's a really strange decision. I don't know why you would. Well, do that. you know, it's, it's not often that you get the chance to, uh, you know, really let your guard down. And, oh, I see. That's why I, I love see. radio. You know, yeah, I also can do some ventriloquism next. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so actually, I want to ask about the movie that you just produced and some other stuff. But you do dress yeah. up pretty nicely, and I'm someone who likes to dress up. I lived in LA for a while. Like dressing up in LA is wearing a T-shirt without holes in it. Do you have a theory for why? You're the exception and not the rule? Well, I'm the weirdo out here, I have to say. It's what I call the tyranny of the casual out in L.A., which is this this sort of enforced, like, oh, you don't get it. Here's how actually what happened was, I mean, back after we did Freaks and Geeks, you know, back in like 2000 when it was over, I started taking meetings because people like the show wanted me to work on other things. Yeah. So I'd have these meetings and you'd go in and, you know, back at that time, since I was had done Freaks and Geeks and I wanted to kind of get in touch with my high school persona, I would wear like, you know, jeans and a t-shirt or whatever. So you go to these meetings, but you meet with the suits, quote unquote, the suits, yeah, the heads of everything. So there you are. And I remember sitting on the couch and they always put you on this like really low couch where your <laughs> knees are in your face, you know, and it yeah. just, you know, I go, I don't like the power structure here. Like they look powerful. And I look like the artist that they're just sort of, you know, yeah. prescribing things to. So I went away from that. And I always used to wear a suit and tie when I was a kid. I used to love it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it again. I'm in my, you know, mid 30s now. I'm an adult, mm-hmm. you know, fairly successful. Let's start dressing like the enemy, basically, I thought. <laughs> and so went out and got a bunch of kind of cheap suits at the mall. 
and started going on my meetings. Well, the minute I started going on my meetings, for some reason, a memo went out around the town that they didn't want to be the suits anymore, so they were going to start dressing like the artists. Oh, yeah. So I get into a, a meeting, and I'm in my suit and tie, and they're all wearing jeans and T-shirts. And it was crazy. But but here's the thing. This is the hubris of Hollywood. It wasn't like, oh, we feel weird now that we've abandoned our uniform. They immediately took on this air of superiority. of, And it was like, oh, look, look at the rube who doesn't know, yeah, you yeah. know that you know, he's not supposed to put on his Sunday go to meeting clothes. <laughs> well, in a way, in this in the movie Snatched, you kind of are a suit in the sense that you're a producer on this project, uh, not a writer <laughs> and director, as you sometimes are. Mm-hmm. But for a while, every other movie seemed to be about a quote man child and now <laughs> Amy Schumer in movies like Snatched and Trainwreck kind of embodies a woman child you know she's an adult but hasn't really matured and mm-hmm. the disconnect is funny it's awkward it's sad why do you think this theme is such a staple of comedy like why does it work well I mean just arrested development in general be it man or woman is I think it's relatable, weirdly, because I think most of us kind of don't want to grow up, mm. you know, and, and we struggle with that. And so it, it's it's a tough line to walk because audiences can get very impatient with somebody who can't get their life together. Yeah. You know, when Katie Dibble, you know, first pitched this project to me, even before she wrote it, and then when she wrote the script, I remember going through going like, God, how do we pull this off? Because it is the hardest thing to kind of get an audience to sort of get behind the, the, you know, the arrested development kind of character. Sure. So the minute that we found out that Amy was interested in it, it was like, oh, that's perfect. Because she's like kind of one of the few people I know who can pull it off, who can be sort of bratty. And yet you find her kind of endearing at the same time. And, you know, when we like when I did Freaks and Geeks, which I created, the the fun about that is in your teens, you're allowed to be a mess. And Mm. even Mm kind of into your 20s, you're allowed to be a mess. The minute Mm -hmm. you get into characters who are in their 30s and they're a mess, the audience gets much less patient. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so do humans, Paul. I'll tell you about that another time. (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) Uh, But, you well, another another thing that's tricky. Well, in Freaks and Geeks, there's a tenderness that is juxtaposed with some raunchiness, which is a natural kind of thing that happens in high school. Kids are a little grosser than than most. Uh, but in, in this movie, as well as Bridesmaids and some of your other R-rated movies, and these are R-rated movies, you know, there are some jokes that are, are pretty, pretty raunchy and raw. I'm wondering if there's a joke in any of your films that you thought maybe went too far and in retrospect you would maybe have excised. <laughs> no, nothing that got in. There's definitely jokes we shoot that uh-huh. were like, ooh, yikes, that was too much. But wow. you, the thing is, you, you, you really don't know. I mean, I've had so many times where people will be very offended by a joke that I think is completely innocuous. And then at the same time, they'll just love a joke that I'm like, that's way too hardcore. We can't pull that off. (laughs) So, I mean, that's why we do so many test screenings, because, you know, the process that we do is early on, we put together a cut of the movie and then we screen it for people off the street, like, you know, 300 people. Yeah. And we record their laughs and then get their feedback. And then we do that every like two to three weeks for months. So it allows us to go like, well, those jokes didn't work. Let's flip in these. Let's try this. Let's try that. It, it is kind of mathematical the way you work it just because, you know, we're, we're making movies to try to entertain the largest swath of the audience that you can. And so, you know, you really need to make sure that stuff works because as one of my editors you never want the premiere to be your first test screening. So, <laughs> exactly. You, know, you, 
You need to make sure it works. <laughs> it's funny to think that there are all these people who attended screeners who've seen versions of your movies that are even grosser and more profane scenes than ended up in the final cut. Like, I was at the yeah. Grove last week, and man, I saw Kristen Wiig. Like, I don't, I don't even know what you probably cut left on the cutting room floor. I'm telling you. There, <laughs> there were some cuts that were extremely uh, gross. I mean, it, Kristen, even when we were, were putting that dress shop scene, they, you know, we're going to shoot it. She was very nervous about it, and, you know, Judd Apatow and I said to her, look, we're going to shoot everything. We're going to shoot stuff that's too much, but we will not put anything in the movie that is not good. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know and honestly, even when we got to the editing room before, as we put together the first cut of that, there was a couple things we were just like, well, let's not even test this. It's just too much. Yeah, there's that bridesmaid scene where all the bridesmaids go and they have bad Brazilian food for lunch, and then they go to a bridal shop. We can all imagine what <laughs> happens next if, if you haven't yes. seen it. I don't, I don't know what to say. You look... Uh. Megan, are you okay? You got food poisoning from that restaurant, didn't you? No, I had the same thing that she had, and I, I hope you're fine. Oh, my. Okay. But there's a delicacy even in directing those scenes and assembling them, I imagine, because, you know, there was a back and forth about not making the characters seem too pathetic or, or playing them completely for laughs and somehow walking that edge of having empathy for them as well as being yeah. able to chuckle. What are some things you do to kind of get that sort of cut? Well, you have to face it just from the very beginning and from the writing. The mistake is to go like, what's the, just the most outrageous thing we can do just to shock the audience? That yeah. is, you're really on thin ice when you do that. But what you do is go like, okay, here's the thing we want to illustrate. And with that scene in particular, it was like, okay, here's a woman who's in a battle with a woman who's much richer than her. She yes. doesn't have any money. Yeah. So she's going to take them to a restaurant she can afford, but she's going to kind of pass it off like it's a great place, even though she kind of knows it's not a great place. <laughs> you know, and then there's going to be consequences to this. Yeah. And, you know, to us, the funniest thing was always not, okay, they're going to be just throwing up and going to the bathroom everywhere. It was what happens when everything is about to go wrong yeah. and everybody around you is trying to pretend it's not happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So then, <laughs> then the fun is to go like, okay, now how can we illustrate this very human and relatable point in the most outrageous way possible? You're right. It's like it's kind of watching... In that scene in particular, Kristen goes through that situation where at one point she's like, isn't it weird we all have the flu? You know, she's just trying to kind of, (laughs) she's still trying to save face. It has nothing to do with what's actually happening to their bodies. It's her performance. Yeah. Everybody has the flu. You don't look very well, Annie. I feel fine. Are you sure it wasn't that gray kind of lamb or you ate a lot of that weird chicken? Was it that? No, in fact, Helen, I'm hungry, and I wish I had a snack. You're hungry? Starving. You know, I mean, no, I mean, that's my favorite part of that whole thing is just the showdown between Rose and Kristen with, <laughs> yeah. with the Jordan Almond because that that is the very embodiment of like I'm fine, I'm fine, and you're just sweating and you're yeah, about to yeah, throw yeah, up. yeah. Well, look, it's time for the Paul Feig is a champion of female-led comedies question. Ah, Are you ready for that? Bring it on. All right, we were just talking about Bridesmaids, which had a nearly all-female cast and it was really successful. And then there are lots of other movies you've made that feature women. And what's great about them is that they don't feature typical Hollywood stereotypes like the woman trying to get pregnant before it's too late. I wonder, with the success of Bridesmaids, have you felt a freedom to write more honest characters? Yeah. I mean, it comes to my my obsession in storytelling is I love female friendships and I love professional women. And I always feel like those are the two things that just never – 
got shown in movies because like you say it was always a romantic comedy where it's about finding a guy you know or the thing that I always hated for so long is that Hollywood always moralized with these movies in which it was basically the story was you've got to choose between your job or your happiness yeah which I always found so offensive because I know so many women who are professionals who are happy they're happily married they have a family and they love their work you know but but it was always this weird kind of judgment that was coming down from the storytellers yeah you know look I love a good romantic comedy, and I'm hoping to do some of those too, but I never want that to be the main motivation uh, for any female character that I portray. One of the the actors that you're closely associated with is Melissa McCarthy, and I think, and I think a lot of people agree, she's one of the funniest humans we have. Yes. You know, can we talk for a moment about her Sean Spicer impersonation? (laughs) The greatest thing ever. We all watch it on Saturday Night Live and we all giggle, but you're a professional, a writer, director, former comedian. What is it about her that makes that impression sing? I mean, it's just so funny and it feels so right. It is so take no prisoners and it's also just spot on for what sketch and caricature and comedy should be, which is you lampoon, you take the things that are the most... (laughs) either irritating or funny or surprising about a character, and then you blow them up. Yeah. But what's so funny about her is just the rage is so funny. Uh, I'll accept one last question. Yeah, I'll take this loser. <laughs> yes, uh, I got a question about the statement the White House released on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Do you think it was anti-Semitic to not even mention the Jewish people in the statement? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm washing that filthy lion mouth. <laughs> and I mean, Melissa is, nobody can be meaner and angrier funny than Melissa McCarthy. And she's found the perfect conduit because Sean Spicer, you know, even he's even, you know, he's backed off. Honestly, he's tried to behave himself so much, but he laid the groundwork when he did that very first press, press conference where he was defending, you know, the attendance of the inauguration. Yeah. And so, he, you know, his goose is cooked after that because once you do something you're known for, that that becomes a thing we parody endlessly. And, you know, the, the comedy falls apart when you go, oh, the person doing it doesn't like the character they're doing or they're kind of winking at us going like, look at how crazy I am. Yeah. Versus just inhabiting a crazy character and believing that character as yourself because, you know, there's two kinds of people we know. We know crazy people who just go like, this person's like nuts or they're just so odd, but that's who they are. Yeah. And then we've known people in the past who go like, I don't buy this person. I think this person's trying to act outrageous. They're trying to be funny or they're trying to do this. And you don't buy it. So I feel you'll forgive anything if you go, this is who the person actually is versus, okay, they're fake. Yeah, there's like an authenticity to it. Well, yeah. we're, we're talking about your writing and directing. And you you know obviously have a lot of knowledge about comedy. But it all started, you were doing stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm. And you know I feel like... You read articles and people, it's like, you started as a stand-up comedian, started as a stand-up comedian, and yet you don't really know what their shtick was. What was your signature shtick? Or did you have one joke that always slayed? Or or what were you known for when you kind of were on the circuit? Well, I kind of morphed as I was on the circuit because, you know, I started out doing it as 
coming from well actually I mean I started doing it when I was 15 years old but that huh. that was that was not that was not my best set that was more <laughs> just kind of like watching Johnny Carson and trying to write jokes like that but uh-huh. when I really kind of went hardcore at it in my 20s I was coming at it as a guy who um who had been doing improv comedy and doing sketch comedy and so I started kind of wanting to be more of like an Andy Kaufman type guy mm. where you'd get up and do characters and disappear into these characters and so I was I was very well known for on the circuit for this character I did called Willard Schmidt who was um, okay. a uh, a high school woodshop teacher <laughs> and who had no sense of humor whatsoever but he did stand up uh-huh. and so it always he would get up and tell a joke that was a super dumb pun about woodshops and then he would tell a horror story about somebody getting their arms cut off <laughs> and it would just alternate between those and it just for some reason it just became the thing I was known for and it was it was it got it got big laughs so <laughs> uh, um, but but then as I went along a lot of people would come up to me because I do these different characters and people would always say like well yeah you're really funny but we really want to know who you are which at first I found really annoying because like well you know you didn't have to know who Peter Sellers was you loved it yeah. when he played a character but there's something about that in a club on stage in front of people it's so intimate that there is something about if you put up a wall, especially if you're doing multiple characters within your act, yeah. where they're like, okay, oh, that's fun, that's fun, but like, who is this person in front of me? Yeah. And so I kind of more, then I morphed my my act slowly into what I called comedy, music, and complaining, uh, <laughs> which was just, I would tell kind of funny stories from my life or things that had happened to me, but always kind of complaining about things that went on. And, um, and then also had some musical things I would do <laughs> in it. Uh, oh, the other thing I was very famous for was, I don't know if you remember, uh, Gilligan's Island. Of but, course, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thurston Howell, Thurston Howell the third um, <laughs> was the, the rich guy, and so I did a thing called the Thurston Howell Blues, where basically I used to play the harmonica, so I would play a blues song with the harmonica and sing uh, Thurston Howell lamenting his life on the island. <laughs> it really so you, killed back when everybody when everybody was old enough to still remember <laughs> Gilligan's Island. Well, that's also back when we didn't, you know, when the rich were considered ghosts and people <laughs> didn't, everyone didn't aspire to be yeah, them. <laughs> yes, exactly. They weren't. The White House. I, th- I think we got into something. I think we. I see the origins of your dapper fashion because I can see some Thurston Howe in your appearance a little bit. <laughs> you know, actually, I mean, he he's probably my style icon that I'm, I'm moving towards because uh, I've been known to wear an ascot. Uh, hey. I, I've yet to hit the captain's hat, but that that could be coming anytime. <laughs> All right. Well, I just have a couple more questions for you. This is just a small thing. When I went to see Snatched. Uh, there was this little trailer before the movie where the two stars, Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn, thanked the audience for, quote, coming to the movies. <laughs> Do you know what I'm speaking yeah, of? Yeah, I've seen that. No, yeah, I, I love it. Yeah. I, I've never seen anything like that. Were, were you aware of it? And like, what is what was the rationale behind that? Um, I was not aware of it when it was being done. I only yeah. knew about it afterwards. I love it because, you know, the art of people going to the movies is is slowly <laughs> slowly yeah. dying a little bit i mean unless it's for the giant tentpole superhero things people are waiting more to kind of watch it at home but we engineer these movies these comedies for an audience i mean that's why we do so many test screenings and that's why we record laughs and we listen to them back in the room and hear oh where's where's it going up where's it going down where we need to let the energy you know wow. flag where do we yeah. have to that you know it, 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 but it's very much the way that i used to work my stand up act and anybody who did stand up that's how you work your act is you're putting together an hour is you you find the ebb and flow and you see what works and you get to know the audience. And so we really work hard on that. And so the idea of if people just go like, Oh, I'll just wait till it's out on, you know, home video, you lose that great experience of sitting in an audience and hearing those laughs. That's, 
every much as important as being in a big theater to see giant special effects. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think it's more important because the more we lose that group experience and that connection to humanity, especially through laughing and positive moments, you know, that we just become more and more isolated. So hmm. we do need to thank the audience who do show up and in hope that they'll keep showing up. I mean, is that partially why you're drawn to kind of, or of late at least, more kind of populist fare? Because, you know, Freaks and Geeks felt a little more intimate and a personal vision of yours. as And some of the mm-hmm. movies you mentioned, Unaccompanied Minors, although that was, I think, originally this American Life piece. But yeah. there's just maybe a little more pathos and a little more darkness than your average kind of mainstream thing than, say, Spy mm-hmm. or The Heat. But is it mm-hmm. partially because you believe in that kind of role the movies can play in kind of keeping people together? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, look, as a filmmaker... You work so hard on a movie. It takes forever, you know, yeah. no matter what. And, and you live it 24 hours a day and you dream it. <laughs> it's your life. So to do that in, for a year, year and a half, and then have the movie come out and people don't see it or just a few people see it mm. is really not a great feeling, <laughs> even <laughs> even if you love the movie. Yeah. And yet, and yet you always want to do quality work. And so for me... Yeah, I I always go like, how can I tell the story I want to tell, but through a bigger context? Yeah, you know, if you, if you look at Spy, Spy is a, a very small movie about somebody who doesn't have the who is good at what they do, but they've lost confidence in themselves because they are working under a more powerful person yeah. who has kind of you know made them feel like they can't do it on their own, and then this person needs to kind of break out from that and kind of get their confidence back. Yeah. But I could tell that as a little indie film, but you know, and I would probably love it and be proud of it, but I want people to see that, and I also want them to have that experience. Yeah. And selfishly, I also, I like big movies. I, I really love action i love stunts sure you know and i love i love big illustration of small ideas and um and so yeah so that's why i'm less drawn to kind of do my small relationship movie if i can figure out a way to do it as a giant sci-fi movie that's much more fun (laughs) to me all right we'll keep our eyes peeled for it yes please do so we have two standard questions we ask our guests and i'm gonna run them by you the first one is what question are you tired of being asked in interviews um, it's the, the, the wording is always different, but, but it's basically, so this thing about women not being funny, that's, that's, you know, that's crazy. Uh-huh. Right. And it's, so it's a way for people to, to ask the question, but still say it in a way where they say, oh, we don't agree with this, but they're still asking the question. Yeah. <laughs> stop yeah. asking, stop asking if women can be funny. They yeah. can be funny. They are human beings. Let's move on and, and not even, yeah, not even feed the trolls on some level by even using that wording. Um, exactly. All right. Well, our, and our other question is broader. It's more of a request. It's tell us something we don't know. And this can be an interesting personal fact about yourself you haven't shared in an interview, or it could just be an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Um, I collect antique walking sticks. Really? I have really? about <laughs> 70 or 80 of them, yes. And I use them when I when I direct. I always have a walking stick with me. Huh. Um, not a cane, because a cane is something you need. A walking stick is something you – it's an affectation that you yeah. use. And – you know, any walking sticks that are made today are, are are just sort of you know they're more canes or whatever they're they're not that cool. But you know there was a time in this world when men all carried walking sticks and women yeah. did too. They actually had they were taller walking sticks that they held differently, but they, the same thing. So the craftsmanship that you find in these old walking sticks is so beautiful. 
And uh, over the years, I've just found different sources where you get them and certain people that collect them and sell them. But the greatest for me was when I made Spy, we were in Budapest and there's this uh, street called Falk Street. And mm-hmm. it's basically, it's the descendants of Peter Falk. Um, owned, <laughs> it was named after them. Yeah. And so um, they had all these old antique stores that would get all these walking sticks in from Russia and from Germany and from all over Eastern Europe. And every weekend, you know, we had off, I would go down there and get a few more. And they were the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And so huh. I have a ton of them. <laughs> I, I, I always thought the Fox were famous for their uh, raincoat. But uh, but little did I well, know. Yes. That, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> well, actually, on that street, they have a, uh, a statue of Peter Falk as Columbo. Beautiful. So, there you I go. love it. Where you go well, to Budapest. I, I do want to say there is a deep irony in that a man who's lived and is successful in Los Angeles of all cities collects walking sticks. Because do you really get, <laughs> do you ever get a chance to use them for their original purpose? Or are they there to kind of prop up the trunk of your Prius while you're. Uh, I don't know, going to Costco or something like that. Well, well, I, I always, you know, when I, when I come back from a movie, I'm so used to having one with me every day that I always, like, try to keep it going in L.A. But what I realize is I basically I'm grabbing a walking stick to walk to my car, and then I get in my car, and then I take out my walking stick to walk the few feet to my office. And uh-huh. I have to set it somewhere. <laughs> and so I, I love having it, but, it like, it, it just becomes almost a nuisance because it's one thing I'm fumbling with is I'm trying to get my yeah. keys out to, to open different things. But I have been known to, to take a stroll through Beverly Hills or, or somewhere else with my walking stick. Okay. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a hardcore affectation if you do it here versus in New York I'll do it sometimes, sure. too. And uh, you know, because I'm actually walking. <laughs> so, do, do you feel like is that why you're drawn to Barsley? Is that I mean, I, I was reading one of your bios, uh, one article about you, and it talked about how you had a Donald Duck pin in high school. Uh, do you feel like you need <laughs> you, you like you kind of like having something that distinguishes you maybe from the crowd? Yeah, I'm. I've always been hung up on this, and, and it's a thing that I. I say to people, which is, you know, because I dress up and a lot of people kind of go like, oh, you, you know, you judge us because we don't wear suits. It's like, no, I don't judge anybody. My only thing I judge is if somebody just doesn't have a style mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a style can be anything. You know, I mean, when I was in my 20s, my style was I collected old antique bowling shirts and wore those mm. all the time with, mm-hmm. you know, kind of regular pants and all that. And it was just a way to kind of go like, hey, world, here's kind of something I think is cool or here's a look I like or here's something. The only thing I think is kind of criminal for, for anybody is to just dress so that you don't get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's basically, yeah. like, I have to cover my body or yeah. the police will come and take me away. You yeah. know, that's kind of like... You know, there's only, you know, if you break it down, we're, you know, for a normal lifespan, we're only alive for 28,000 days, which is terrifying. If you think about it, you think like, oh, I must be a half a million. It's like, no, it's 28,000 days. (laughs) Yeah. Gets you to around 80. So, like, why do you want to waste any time out in public not kind of representing yourself? Because, look, we all judge people. Based on their appearance, whether we want to or not, you just can't help it. You you get a mental image of somebody, so why not help them out and go like, "Look, here's here's who I am," and then it's up to, for them to judge if that's who you really are or not. But uh, I think you're you onto know, something. Have as, a style. As someone who who has a little bit of style, I'm not going to judge whether it's good or bad. But I will say, I find that people who don't who are just dressed 
who just dressed to be comfortable, I feel like yeah. that's actually rude in a sense because I do feel like having style is more like um, acknowledging the crowd, acknowledging that life yeah. is a pageant, acknowledging that there are other people in the world and so you should telegraph a little bit about who you are and it kind of is – it's actually inviting people in a way to kind of – um, look at you and 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 interact with you as opposed to just having a hoodie or sweatpants or whatever just clothes people have that just make them you know that you'd wear in the house or to exercise out in the world. No, you're turning the world into your bedroom basically. Yes, you know it's something I'm really hung up on, and I wrote an article about this for for Esquire a few years ago uh, about when you travel, you know, when you go on vacation, you know, look, we save up all our money to go on these beautiful vacations to wonderful yeah. places. Yeah. that we you know all of our cameras. But think about it, like, if people are there, you know, especially on vacation, like, I'm just going to dress for comfort because i got to walk. And exactly. So, blah, blah, blah. so you take a picture of this beautiful place, and it looks like the worst group of extras you've ever seen in your <laughs> life. You know? Like, yeah. you know, we, I, I, like, I watch a movie about someone going to Italy, and, like, everybody's dressed nice, and you're like, I want to be in that world. Yeah. I don't want to be with a bunch of people with ski poles and, you know, and, yeah. and fanny packs <laughs> and big, you know, those big uh, walking shoes and stuff. It's like, look, I get you have to be comfortable, but you can still do it in a way that you're you're not you're not becoming bad scenery in my vacation. Amen. Amen. I was in the Amalfi Coast this past summer, lucky enough to go there and yeah, I had a blazer that I'd wear at the evening and my friend yeah. would be like, "Why are you wearing it's so hot or you know, you have to yeah. you, you have to fuss be fussy about not getting it wrinkled." I'm like, "Because I am young, relatively young and in the Amalfi Coast, I want <laughs> I want these memories. I want these pictures. Exactly. I want, I want it to be uh, the full experience. Um, totally. Comfort is a state of mind. And you can either convince yourself you're comfortable or you convince yourself you're not comfortable. Amen. And well, so we'll end on that I note. leave that gem for you. I, will, I won't take any up any more of one of your 28,000 days on this planet. But um, it, was a, <laughs> it was certainly a pleasure to chat with you. I uh, enjoyed this film and, and I enjoy your work. So thank you so much for coming by and chatting with us. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Dapper Paul Feig, wow. Snatched, is out now. It stars Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn. And spoiler alert, there is one really gross scene that involves a tapeworm. Noted. Ugh. And uh, <laughs> for those who want to see Paul's style, we have a photo of him at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. He was not naked. That was jokes. That was. Imagine if he was naked with a walking stick. I, that would be a, be that of, would be a weird look. I can imagine that catching on <laughs> in some places. That's right. Maybe that's happening now. Uh, and that concludes this installment of Dinner for One, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be posting a full episode of the Dinner Party Download this Friday with all of the fixings, including, among other things, the tale of a burlesque dancer turned baseball player. True story. So come on back for that. Till then, follow us on Instagram or Twitter, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. And now we want you to know our show's senior producer is Jackson Musker. Our associate producers are James Kim and Crystal Ripple. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our intern is Emerald Douglas. Bill Lance engineered. See you Friday. Mm-hmm.